Hello and welcome to an all new episode of Close Talking. This is co-host Jack Rossiter Munley. Before we get into today's episode, I just wanted to put in a quick note because we actually got a wonderful email this week uh, from the poet who wrote the poem we talked about in our third episode, Orphanotrophia, Sun Yung Shin. So it was wonderful to hear from, from her, and we love getting emails. It's a little reminder that you can always reach out to us at closetalkingpoetry at gmail.com, whether or not you've written one of the poems we've covered, to tell us if there are other pieces you want us to look at, or if you have thoughts on any of the pieces we've already covered. So again, it was great to hear that message, and we look forward to many more emails in the future. On with the show. Hello, and welcome to an all-new episode of Close Talking. I am one of your co-hosts, Connor McNamara-Stratton. And I am your other co-host, Jack Rossiter-Munley. And as always, we've got a marvelous poem for you today. We're going to read it, then we're going to talk about it, then we're going to read it again. But before we get into it, if you have a moment, we really appreciate it. If you give us a, a rating or a review... It really helps us reach new listeners and ascend the Everest mountain of the Apple podcast algorithm. It is a never ceasing climb. It's (laughs) like if Mount Everest, I mean, this is also kind of how mountains work, but if it was like always getting taller, but like exponentially instead of geologically in the time frame. It's like Sisyphus has to like roll the rock up Everest. But then it rolls down like even further each time. Like, dang. Like the like the the rock rolls back and the mountain grows every time. Every and time. And it's like, dang. Good quad, Sisyphus, but I'm sorry <laughs> for your plate. <laughs> just like the tectonic plates just like really got amped and they're like really going at it. Um, the poem we are talking about is called Warming. And it is by the poet D.G. Nanuk Okpik. And she is a wonderful poet. She is Inupiaq Inuit, who um, is from Alaska and I think was raised in Anchorage, but lives, I think, in Barrow, which is like the very north, north, north part. Her first collection was called Corpse Whale. It came out in 2012 and it won the American Book Award. I discovered her, um, there's a great anthology that Grey Wolf Press published called New Poets of Native Nations, uh, which is edited by Hyde uh, Erdrich. She was in that, and I read this poem and others, and I just loved it. I thought we had to talk about it. Before we get into it, there's a couple words that are in Inuit. The first is comic, which is like a very, it's like a winter boot that's like traditionally worn by Inuit and it's like often made of seal skin, maybe reindeer skin sometimes as well. The other word is Ukpiagvik, which is I think the original name, Inuit name for Barrow, which means the place where snowy owls are hunted. Also, instead of saying she does this or I do this, there's like this she slash I that happens throughout. And I'll probably just say she and I for the purposes of the reading, but something to keep in mind. Okay. Warming by DG Nanook Okpik. 
She and I make a bladder bag to draw water from the ice trench. She and I chain stitch a skin dressed in oil to make a new pot of soup. She and I sews a badger hair rough around the top of her, my, commix to make the steps windward toward the limits of woman. She and I eat club root and white clover to strengthen her, my, silver body to bear a child. She and I map, following one degree from the North Star and 60 degrees from the end of the Earth's axis on rotation for Ukpiagvik. She and I use a small arc of ice, cleaving into parts, reduced to simple curves fitted with serrated edges of white flesh. She and I mold to the fretted neck of frozen water into a deep urn, made like a rock shelter or a cavern. She and I constructs a hole on the surface of a glacier formed by melting particles of roe and pan reservoir dust from a shelter for the ice worms. Because the earth is molding, burning, laughing, and purging its crust. Yeah, the whole poem is just feels really intense, but that last line obviously is so much. I know, it's so like it's so incredible because a lot of the poem is kind of this description of what she and I are doing basically. But then this last moment is this this turn and it's like I guess this is another poem that probably warrants a little play by play. I think that makes sense. Yeah, oftentimes in the beginning, uh, especially for poems that are, you know, a little less straightforward on the face of it, uh, we sort of talk through like just the, the bare facts of what's happening in the poem. And then we kind of, you know, get into some other stuff. So the speaker is way in the north of Alaska, I think, on like a glacier, I assume, or some large thing of ice. I, well, maybe not a glacier, but there is a reference to the surface of a glacier, which could be figurative, but it also could be not. But there's an ice trench, which like is what you would think it is, even though I had to look it up. It's just a trench in a big thing of ice <laughs> and is kind of like doing all these actions. So she makes a bladder bag, which one common sort of like traditional Inuit practice is making bags and other sort of containers from like the intestines and other organs of like seals and stuff because uh, they were like waterproof and very strong. And then, you know, she stitches a skin dressed in oil to make a new pot of soup. Where the soup comes in, I'm not exactly sure at this point, but stitching is a, a very important practice. There's a kind of like waterproof stitch that's like made with seal sinew oftentimes. And that would like seal up the boots or other kinds of clothing. Traditionally, from what I've read, which is a little cursory, and traditionally women would almost always bring around their stitching materials. I think because if it was so cold, you need to seal up things like in an emergency rather quickly. Then she sews a badger hair around the top of her commix to make the steps windward. 
So the Kamiks are the snow boots and, you know, is, is sort of fixing her boots and then is eating club root and white clover, which, which are, I assume have this kind of like remedy properties, you know, to strengthen her body to bear a child. So the speaker is either pregnant or trying to conceive, perhaps it's implied by to bear a child there. And then is kind of like following the North Star and sort of like making a map to direct herself. And then there's kind of this part that's like gets into this action of ice, which is like very intense, but like a little hard to parse. But like I use a small arc of ice cleaving into parts, serrated edges of white flesh. Um, I mold to the fretted neck of frozen water into a deep urn made like a rock shelter, and I construct a hole on the surface of a glacier. So there's all this kind of like working with the ice and making like an urn or a shelter or a cavern or a hole out of parts of ice. And then there's this kind of the last line, like because the earth is molding and uh, is, you know, burning and purging its crust. I don't know how helpful that is. But uh, the really short story is it's a series of actions the speaker is taking in the northern Arctic Alaskan territory. Something I think that's important about all of those actions, and this is a little bit necessary in any extreme environment, which that is, but every single one of them is informed by the environment, which then leads up to this final line about the planet as a whole and kind of steps out of these actions into being this broader implied statement. But every single action either involves interacting with ice or references as a means of orientation, something natural. So when the speaker turns, they're turning windward. It's not, I turned left, I turned right, it's windward. And also when finding direction, you're told just how far north, following one degree from the North Star, that's pretty far north if you're only one degree away, and 60 degrees from the end of the Earth's axis on rotation. All of the ways of orienting yourself, all of the actions that are taken are immediately referencing elements of the natural world. Yeah, I think that's really right. The two kind of big things that stood out to me is, A, what you were talking about, which is like this intense connection to the natural world where like everything every action even the tools you know are like you know all from animals you know badger hairs and things like that um but also this idea of like this she and i thing like that happens throughout which i've read you know other poems by her and that's sort of like a common part of at least this kind of body of her work, what that kind of gets at is the self is less defined. So like if you're on the one hand in the third person and then also in the first person, it's a little harder to locate the person itself more in isolation. We were talking about in some other poem, I think it was Jenny Shia's Private Property, where it's a little different, but the I was really not that present in that poem but at the same time you felt the eyes like the subjects really in the room but by sort of firmly if the poem had firmly been like I do this I do that I see this I that it's like defining the self separates the self 
from the environment. So I think Oakpick's choice to use this she-I thing is another way of kind of like less defining the self. And that also like works in tandem with this connection to the natural world where it's not like this perfect harmony, but, you know, it's not a situation where the humans are like of this other plane who just use the earth for whatever that we are one among many living beings of the earth, not like on the earth. And I like that it retains both because it then still gives you, it's sort of like a very successful instance of having your cake and eating it too, because you get the sense of connection and the sense of separation. And I like that it then extends into how the grammar of the sentences has to work because you get she slash I so slash s a badger hair so you can read it both ways she sews a badger hair rough i sew a badger hair rough like in your head you can kind of do both which is neat because then you can have both experiences of being deeply connected or being more removed in different ways because i think you feel more connected maybe as the individual doing the action when it's i sew a badger hair rough i can see myself as the i doing it but when you read she sews about your hair rough, you are seeing a more connected image of the person in their environment, which I really enjoy experiencing in both ways in the poem. And it's also interesting because such an unconventional choice, um, like I don't think I've ever seen someone else do this. It, at the same, it also draws attention to the she and the I, but not in a way that makes them seem distinct from the world but like you are focused on their relationship to the world but like they're still them if that makes sense like it's not an erasure of self and it's not like i am subsumed into the world like the the formal choice to be like she i and constantly have to read like make this choice when you're reading it also like draws attention to the subject like and their relationship maybe it's like the relationship itself that you're thinking about that's very interesting one thing in the the new poets of native nations anthology which i highly recommend everyone get um it's really really good at the end of the book each author has a kind of sort of thing where they talk about their process or their poetics or whatever and i felt like what she wrote was really interesting she she writes i was taught there are the ones who sit beside in storytelling a multi-generational poetic force of the sila or the voice spirit in the wind in which it is vital to understand inupiaq tradition it is as if there is a storyteller from 1,009,790 years ago on the right side of me and on the left from 134 years in the future and then me in the middle. Inupiaq storytellers have long histories and should be honored, revered, respected, and accounted for. Like I said, these are not my poems to own. They are multi-universes. I am from a long heritage of these special people, and I am humbled and aware of this as I write daily and think of them as if they are here with me now. Which I think is really interesting. 
one thing it speaks to is another way in which the poet herself is like also thinking about her own self as like, like it's such an opposite way of thinking of a writer, you know, in the sort of classic authorial genius type, you know, it's just this, this towering mind and every choice they make is their singular choice or whatever, which is, I think how, at least I feel like I was taught about some of the, you know, the, the writers in the American canon, you know, like Faulkner or whatever. And what she was sort of saying is that there's all these storytellers from all these times who are like coexisting across time. And she is one of them and she is like participating in it, but she does not own the stories or the poems. There's more of a, a recording or something. And it feels connected to the way the she and the I coexist where like, on the one hand, the speaker is like, I'm doing this. And if it was only like that, it would be more like, you know, I own this action or whatever. Like, I'm making the choice to own this action. And if it's she, it's like the speaker is like watching herself do something. There's this like distance from it. And that the kind of both coexisting tries to create, I think, that sense of like multiple selves and spaces overlapping, I guess, like simultaneously. Absolutely. I think there's a moment in the poem where I was identifying something along those lines going on, where it does touch on not necessarily universal, but on something much larger than the individual. And that is the the line where to make the steps windward toward the limits of woman, not a woman, not women, but woman, like the concept of woman is the limits that are being explored. And then the next line is the one that hints at uh, strengthen my, her silver body to bear a child. So there's the implication that the limits of woman is like the pain and act of childbirth, maybe like that's sort of an extreme thing that a, a woman is able to do. But just the phrase toward the limits of woman does seem to be an, an instance of sort of what you're talking about. Like it's this deep acknowledgement of a lineage and of being some th part of something that's much bigger than the individual I would think of being. It is putting the speaker in this broader constellation being seen from a distance kind of situation, in addition to just being an evocative phrasing of like just it's an evocative way to say that it's it's neat. But I think that that's that's sort of along the lines of what you were describing. Yeah, no, I think that's really right. And it's it's such a it's like it's such a great moment in the poem because it's the first figurative moment up until that point things are very very physical i mean it's it's like this poem i wish i had read it when i was still teaching because using concrete detail is like this poem's like name of the game you know bladder bag to draw water from the ice trench chain stitching like a skin that's been dressed in oil and sewing a badger hair around the top of her boots. These are all, A, just like each thing is very vivid. And, and certainly, like, I don't want to, I think there is a risk of a, a reader like me who's like maybe less familiar with Inupiat tradition and also just like living in the far north. And I don't want to like, I think one could make the use of like, 
bladder bag or something like that one by meaning just like a, a white American reader kind of like exotic or something, um, which I think would be horrible. Absolutely. And, and I recognize that there is a, that that is a, a danger. And so I wanted to like bring that up to be explicit about it. But I think that the specificity of what is being used and like, it's not a hair, it's a badger hair, um, and then also the minuteness of the actions are very, like, it could be, I like make my boots tighter or something, you know, but it's, it's not about the tightness of the boots only. It's like also the action of sewing and chain stitching. And those like three lines are so like all so concrete in that way. And then this fourth line has these two parts and one sort of approaches the figurative and then the other one like goes there fully like to make the steps windward uh towards the limits of woman the steps windward is like there's a a concrete way to think about it i guess like in that it could be the way of the wind but it's the way that it's phrased feels less a literal description of something it's like the way of the wind feels more important than just like a direction i guess and then towards the limit of woman is yeah it's just and it's so surprising i think because of those three lines that came before it it's, it's interesting i i love how you talked about that there's this sense of being in this like you're in this space already and you're just like approaching various limits rather than like it being a part of you like rather than like you are many things including being a woman it's like you are a part of the category of woman i guess where like woman is sort of above the self i guess is what i was trying to say rather than like the self is more important and there's just like one part of you which is your gender identity i really like your point about detail and I totally agree it would be amazing to teach this poem because obviously it's a really effective use of detail and there's a ton of concrete detail but it doesn't feel like that the feeling the poem retains partially because of the she I conventional like the convention of using she I creates that distance and creates that different feeling but also I think it's just such an effective use of consistent intense detail to create an evocative scene. It's like what you want all good description in literature to do, which is to put you in the place. And sort of as we were saying earlier, it does that in multiple ways and you both feel distance and connection. But what this also gives you is a very clear sense of where you are. Like you get all of your senses described for you the way that you would hope good writing would do. You get a sense of what it would smell like to be there, what it would taste like because you're eating you can feel the cold as you turn windward. You wonder what does the limits of woman mean? Does it mean that it's now so cold that that's the limit of what your body can endure because you've just been adding more layers to your boots? You you don't feel bogged down in the detail. And when you actually stop to think about it, you realize it is enough detail that that's a danger. And it becomes even more impressive that that doesn't happen because there are plenty of poems that do this and you're just like, oh my God. I get it. We're on a ship or whatever. It's like the salty brine struck up against the wooden planks and the groaning timbers 
and reached to the sky, matched only by the cries of our captain. It's like, oh my god. <laughs> and then I took off one sodden shoe, only to realize I had failed to take off the other sodden shoe. Beneath those sodden shoes were my wretchedly wet socks. It's like, okay, fine, whatever. Yeah, um, yeah. Yep. But, like, at no point while you're running through all, all of these, particularly at the beginning when you're, like, being introduced to the world of the poem and you're getting description after description of making a bladder bag and ice trench and you're chain stitching, and it doesn't feel like you're just running through a laundry list or you're trying to get somewhere. You feel like the detail is the point and you feel okay with the time that you're spending in those details, which is really nice. I really agree. I want to think about this, the last part a bit. Because it gets really weird, too, which is why it's cool because then it gets weird but also detailed at the same time. Um, so it's like they're using a small arc of ice. So arc of ice is strange noun for ice to me. But then also I'm thinking about, I don't know, we've been talking about degrees and thinking about geometry. Maybe there's an arc kind of. Like, that's more figurative, but I'm just like, okay, okay, we're getting somewhere. But then cleaving into parts reduced to simple curves fitted with serrated edges of white flesh. That is fascinating, and there's a lot of questions. What's cleaving into parts? Is that the ice that's cleaving into parts? What has been reduced? Is this like the ice being reduced to simple curves? fitted with serrated edges of white flesh, and then is flesh a figurative thing for, like, ice flesh? Or is this, like, actual some kind of flesh? Which I sort of don't think so, but then is it, like, serrated edges? Are we making, like, an ice knife or something? I don't think these are right at all, but they're just, like, questions that I have, like, with each little small moment, I guess. Because the cleaving into parts reduced to simple curves fitted with serrated edges of white flesh. And that made me think of, you know how like you get those windblown, I don't know how to describe them, like I guess a curve of ice, but at the top you have like snow accumulated and it's kind of that jagged edge of snow next to the ice itself. I was wondering, that was the image it conjured for me. I don't know if that what it, what's supposed to be described, but it is a great example of how the descriptions are still there, but they're becoming much more figurative. Because I felt like I still had a visual foothold in what was going on, but that it was definitely slipping. And I think so. Then we get to she and I mold to the fretted neck of frozen water into a deep urn. So the fretted neck of frozen water, that could be just a restatement of the serrated edges of white flesh in that if you have frets, they're like serrated bits, I guess. Frozen water is ice. I mean, the fretted neck has the guitar vibe. But then in terms of literal description, the the kind of the frets can be the serrated edges, maybe. Because a fretted neck is essentially a long straight neck with little bumps along it, you know? Right. So I think, I think that's probably the case. Yeah. And then it's like into a deep urn made like a rock shelter or a cavern and what's interesting so then it it's like maybe what's happening is there's this kind of ice formation 
that is jagged or fretted or whatever, that then leads into an urn or a shelter, or that is where the speaker is like, because then at the end, I construct a hole on the surface of a glacier. The hole could be the urn, could be the, the cavern, or the cavern could be the way to get to a place where you can make a hole on the surface of the glacier. Because part of the point, which I could be wrong, is like in the beginning, she and I make a bladder bag to draw water from the ice trench. So we're in this like we're already in a kind of cavern or like, you know, a, a long trench in the ice and then drawing water. So there's like, you know, there's obviously water under ice. And I was just kind of imagining the speaker trying to get at the water somehow through the ice, I guess. I couldn't exactly tell, but those are possible actions. But then the, the, the weirdness too is like, she and I mold to the fretted neck of frozen water. Like my first way I wanted to read that was like, she and I mold the fretted neck, like we're doing something to it, but it's like we mold to it, which is like more like we're turning into the shape or we're conforming to the shape of this piece of ice, which I thought was strange and interesting. Okay, so I'll just go out and say it, but the title is warming. We're in this ice. Then we end with the earth is molding burning, laughing, purging its crust. I mean, is this is this a global warming poem, I guess? Or not like a global warming poem, but is it thinking about global warming? I mean, certainly we know that one of the effects, of the many effects that we've already seen, I've been seeing for a while, is like the melting of ice and how both just like ice is melting, but also that it's melting earlier and refreezing later. And so one who is one of the interesting and sad and scary parts about climate change is it's the whole world. And so everyone is experiencing it differently depending on where you are. And so this speaker who is in the Arctic with glaciers and ice, a speaker attending to the ice, that would be the place where they might like really notice global warming happening. I'm not sure about that reading, but I thought about it just because warming didn't happen like in the poem. It's an interesting title for that reason. Like we have the the earth is burning, which sort of gets to us, and the the ice particles the melting particles of row and pan reservoir dust hints at a warming, but it's pretty implied. To me, that suggests that the title is referring to something bigger, which then my obvious thought was global warming. I agree. I think you also have the stereotypical connection that you were sort of talking about, which is the melting ice caps as the main symbol of global warming and the melting of ice as the way that we like chronicle the reality of climate change for a number of reasons that's become the image 
And so when you have a poem titled Warming set in this landscape, even if you're not writing to that, you're then almost by necessity having to write against it. While global warming might not be the central concern of this poem, it does seem involved with. That's a really good point, because like, um, I haven't read this book, but there's this book came out, I think, relatively recently that's called um, The Uninhabitable Earth, uh, Life After Warming by David Wallace Wells. Uh, and it's like about climate change. And a friend of mine had read it. And uh, also I was listening to my good friend Ezra Klein on the Ezra Klein podcast. And they were both saying how one of the arguments of that book is that climate change won't be like a topic that is important, but would rather be a context through which everything else is understood or like a lens. Like my friend was saying, like, perhaps we've been living in the era of modernity or something where, you know, there's, there's certain paradigms that like when we think about topics, we think about them through that lens. And so in the same way that you were talking about, like, it's not concerned per se, like directly with climate change, but it is involved with it rather like it's there kind of informing everything, I guess. And it just makes me think about, cause I love that last line, the earth is molding, burning, laughing, purging its crust. Laughing is such a great word there my immediate thought is it's just there's been a lot of talk about like how do you best talk about climate change or like what are the kinds of stories that you should or shouldn't be telling in order to like frame it properly so that people do the right thing or whatever and one of the things that some people have criticized is like it's often talked about like we need to save the planet kind of thing and it's like the planet is going to be chill like it's been changing its climate for billions of years it's like we need to save ourselves from a changing planet that is laughing <laughs> and that burning. has yeah that's been a refrain for a long time I, mean, I think george carlin had comedy bits about that as far back as the late 90s where he's talking about how save the earth is bullshit the <laughs> earth will be fine um, and then this is also, you know, everybody's favorite cultural critic, critic Slavoj Žižek's line on everything along these lines, which is basically like, this is a human concern. Doesn't the then the part that doesn't get often enough added on is that it doesn't mean that we then don't take climate change seriously, but we can acknowledge the fact that we are rapidly making the planet less habitable for ourselves and also causing massive human strife because of the effects of climate change which are in fact as a result of our activity so there's like a couple of steps to get added on but i totally agree with you that's where i go with that laughing line as well and also molding sounds a lot like molting which is just a sonic resonance as well that's in there but then when it ends with purging its crust it can sort of feel like this may be human influenced climate change but there's also i feel like you purge out the bad things in your life you know really cleansing almost and i guess you could sort of see 
that as being like human influenced climate change that then makes the earth uninhabitable for humans the earth shakes off its crust of humanity and kind of rolls along i really like that reading of the last line especially the molding molting because it makes me think i don't know too much about um geological processes but like rocks i was learning about the rock cycle again and under the earth's like crust there's all this heat and pressure and so it like molts and then it's like liquid but then it's like pushed up into the earth and like that's how you get like mountains and volcanoes and then it can like burn and lava and stuff but then it's like changes the crust maybe this might be going into non-science but there seems to be like a, a cycle of the earth's crust and inside the earth's core through which like it sort of molts and burns and purges if that makes sense Absolutely. Yeah. Um, That's fascinating. So on the one hand, I feel like maybe she's talking about that. But then I also think you're totally right about the purging and how it's like, all right, you got to get out of here, people. <laughs> but then it's also the molding molting is also it is molding, which is a repetition of the she and I mold to the fretted neck of frozen water into a deep urn. And so it makes me think about like, like when I was noticing she and I mold to the fretted neck, you know, it's like the earth is doing the molding. Like the earth is setting the terms and the, the limits and the speaker is the one that is being molded into something, you know, which is the, the neck of frozen water, which is like another, you know, natural, formation or whatever it's interesting because there's all these things that the speaker is doing but then at the end there's this sort of recognition of like being at the mercy of the earth and the laughing part is like sort of recognizing i don't know like that but also like the extent to which the earth doesn't really care and is just doing its own thing then I was like rethinking, like, how did we get to that last line? And there's this sentence, we, she and I construct a hole on the surface of a glacier, okay, formed by melting particles of row and pan reservoir dust from a shelter for the ice worms, which is a lot of things. And row are like the little shellfish eggs, I think. And ice worms, it's very funny. I was looking up what ice worms were, and every article was like, are ice worms real? Yes, they are, <laughs> uh, which was very funny. But there are worms that just live in ice, and they can survive freezing temperatures. And actually, if it gets too warm, they just melt, which is kind of crazy. That's horrifying. Um, yeah. But basically, it seemed like they're there was access to it based on the melting particles, I guess. And then there's this kind of life that's being exposed. Anyway, it just seemed to me that, like, the speaker is kind of both kind of, you know, digging deeper into the ice, but that, and so approaching kind of the crust, but then also finding the changing earth because of the melting. And then, like, the other kinds of life that are also dependent on the ice being as it is in some kind of way. The last little bit that I really appreciated was it has this thing of like 
scale and the smallness, the specificity and concreteness is so laser focused for most of the poem, as we were kind of talking about, like with, you know, uh, chain stitching and the badger hair and the very precise directions of like being one degree from the North Star and the Earth's axis and stuff. But then at the end, it just sort of blows up out and is like totally big and like the Earth is, you know, purging its crust and laughing and is like personified in that way. It's just such a great like in a small kind of craft sense, like how do you pull off that last line you know like how does it because to me when i read it i'm just like damn uh and it like kind of comes at you in like this kind of amazing way and to me it's one of those situations where like it's because it's been specific for so long and you really feel like you're grounded in this like super specific place that when the huge comes it's both a surprise but you're also like you kind of buy it in a way Anyway, I just thought that was like really like amazing. That is. And part of what I think also makes that line work is that even though it is no longer specific in the same concrete way, it is weirdly specific for figurative language because you get four modifiers for what the earth is doing with its crust, which is, I think most people would take that as, I don't know, I mean, the term that I kept coming to when I was thinking about it was overkill, which doesn't really apply because I think it works and that kind of has a negative connotation. But it's like way more than you need. But I think it does help it tonally fit with the poem that has been so specific when you find out that the earth is molding, burning, laughing, and purging its crust. There's so much information there that you spend the time with it to think, oh, what is all of this actually saying for me? And I think that that is really important for making it still feel a part of what came before. Yeah, that's a really good point. I like that a lot. Any other thoughts? I do have one, which is that we should read it again. <laughs> Let's read it again. Warming by D.G. Nanook Okpik. She and I make a bladder bag to draw water from the ice trench. She and I chain-stitch a skin dressed in oil to make a new pot of soup. She and I sews a badger hair rough around the top of her my kamiks to make the steps windward toward the limits of woman. She and I eat club root and white clover to strengthen her and my silver body to bear a child. She and I map, following one degree from the North Star and 60 degrees from the end of the Earth's axis on rotation. For Ukpigvik, she and I use a small arc of ice, cleaving into parts, reduced to simple curves fitted with serrated edges of white flesh. She and I mold to the fretted neck of frozen water into a deep urn made like a rock shelter or a cavern. She and I construct a hole on the surface of a glacier formed by melting particles of row and pan reservoir dust from a shelter for the ice worms. Because the earth is molding, burning, laughing, and purging its crust. 
much for listening. If you like this, please, please write a review on iTunes or, at the very least, rate us. You can keep up with our news and other poetry and book-related news at facebook.com slash close talking or on Twitter at close talking. If you have another reading of one of the poems we've discussed, think we got something wrong, have a new idea for a topic we should tackle or a work we should discuss, please let us know. Tweet at us or shoot us an email at close talking poetry at gmail.com.